for the last number of weeks, our congregation here in Owen Sound, for those of you who are visiting, our congregation has been working our way through a sermon series on Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. And today, we have reached Nehemiah chapter 10, which you can find on page 561 of your pew Bible. Just prior to this, the people of Judah have gathered together in Jerusalem. They have just finished a feast, and now they have gathered together, and they have proceeded to confess their sin publicly before the Lord, but also confess the mercy of the Lord, confessing both of these truths. And in response to that, we read in Nehemiah 9, verse 38, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Nehemiah chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Seriah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Genethon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites, Jeshua, son of Azaniah, Binui, the son of Henadad, and Cadmiel. Their brethren, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Bani, and Beninu. The leaders of the people, Parosh, Bahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atir, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodijah, Hashum, Bizai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilhat, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Baana. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people, 
for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, at the appointed times, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our house, and the first fruits of all the fruit of all the trees, year by year, to the house of the Lord, to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers are. And we will not neglect the house of our God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jonathan Edwards was a famous minister around the time of the Great Awakening in North America. Many of you would be familiar with at least one of the titles of his sermons. This was his most famous one. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Interestingly enough, while this was one of his most famous and most popular sermons, this wasn't his usual style of preaching. Fire and brimstone was usually more distant from his words. Jonathan Edwards was a warm and kind man who had a great heart for those around him. He particularly felt warmth towards new converts, and nowhere does this shine through more clearly than in a letter that he wrote to a certain Deborah Hathaway, commonly titled, Advice to Young Converts. In this letter, he touches down on a number of issues, but one issue he turns to time and time again is the question of maintaining your first love to Christ and the church, and how this flows out in action. He says, I would advise you to keep up as great a strife and earnestness in religion in all aspects of it as you would do if you knew yourself to be in a state of nature and seeking conversion. He says, we advise persons under conviction to be extremely earnest for the kingdom of heaven. But when they have attained conversion, they ought not to be the less watchful, laborious, and earnest in the whole work of religion, but the more. The reason that he writes this is that the love of many grows cold after a time. And this can happen in a marriage if it's not properly maintained. This can happen in a friendship if you move to a different city and you don't keep up those contacts, those connections. It can also happen in your walk with God. So it's of utmost importance to take your walk with God seriously. Once God has captured your heart, it's important to, in turn, pursue God, lest your love for him grow cold. For Jonathan Edwards, personally, this was made a reality in his life through a less famous document that he wrote 
called The Resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. In this document, he wrote down for himself how he would strive to follow God and submit to him in all aspects of his life and do this with utmost seriousness. You'll find a very similar action in our passage today. The people of Judah have turned to the Lord in revival. They've confessed the depth of their sin and they have professed their thanks towards him for his mercies towards them. But they're not content with just expressing their sorrow. They want real and lasting change. Before God and everyone there present, they declare their submission to the word of God and their commitment to his kingdom. And with this, we reach the theme of our passage. The people of God resolve to follow him in submission to his word. We'll see, first of all, the obedience of faith, and secondly, love resulting in action. In many different Bibles and Bible translations, you'll find this event in Nehemiah 10 referred to as the sealing of the covenant. Before we get into this passage, we need to understand that this, that they're doing before the Lord is not a covenant in the sense that we're used to thinking about. When we think about a covenant, we often think of God's unshakable promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, or the one that he made with Moses after the Exodus. But the Hebrew word that's used here for that kind of covenant, that's used there for that kind of covenant, is different from the one that we find here in our passage today. God's interaction with man in his covenants is unilateral. It's one way. He's promising to be the God of his people. God is the one who makes covenants with his people, but rarely are the people said to make covenants with God. Often there's a response in the covenant required from man, and there's curses associated with disobedience, but the promise goes one way. The covenant is established by God and it stands firm through the ages. The word that's used here, however, is slightly different from that. It carries more of the sense of a binding pledge or a solemn written agreement. As such, we can see in this passage that the people are responding to God with this document, not covenanting as such but rather agreeing to live according to the former covenant that God had already established with his servant Moses. In order to show their seriousness about their submission to the word and person of God, the people together seal this promise. With the opening verse of our passage, we read these words. And because of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So they were the ones who led the charge. They're the ones who led the way for the people in leadership. Because of all this, we read that at the beginning of that verse. And it's an important phrase to note. It gives us a lens through which we should view the entire passage. In fact, it gives us a lens through which we should view the entire passage. Christian life. As a convert, the Christian doesn't begin his or her new life in a vacuum. Rather, the Christian is able to enter into a new life due to something that can be found completely outside of themselves. And that something is the mercy of God. 
The people here, they are basing their resolution to act and live for the Lord on the mercy of God. The mercy that we find throughout the previous chapter of Nehemiah 9. Last week, those of you who were here saw how the confession that was made was not primarily a confession of sin of the people, but it was a proclaiming a truth, the bitter truth of who man is before God and the sweet truth of who God is, all tied together within the framework of his glorious and infinite mercy. We find this very same pattern elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? We see it brought forward by the Apostle Paul in Romans. He spends the entire first chunk of Romans speaking about the mercy and the grace of God, about the fallenness of man. That's chapter 1. And then speaking about the mercy and the grace of God all the way through. How God has reached out to his people, sending his son to suffer and die. He climaxes that in chapter 11 with all the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Now it's on the basis of that confession, that Glorious climax of the first 12 chapters speaking about, first 11 chapters speaking about the grace and the mercy of God that he bases Romans 12 on. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, or in view of God's mercy, in light of what he's done, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable act of service. Action only and ever comes from one source, God. When someone acts in a way that's pleasing to God, it's because of the mercy that he first extended to us. But that doesn't negate our responsibility. Canons of Dort 3.4, Article 12, puts it this way. The will so renewed is not only acted upon and moved by God, but acted upon by God, the will itself also acts. Our God works in our hearts. He is the one who does that work to renew the heart of man. He gives us the ability to respond, and then he calls for the response of man. We are called in view of his mercy to us, in view of God's mercy, to commit in submission and obedience to his will, all of his will, to present your bodies, your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And it is on this basis that the people of Judah respond. This leads us often to the question, doesn't it? Are you committed to obedience? Are you committed to the obedience that flows from faith? Or do you think, oh, it's not necessary to do this? It's not necessary to obey? I don't really feel like it. But feeling has little to do with it. In fact, we read elsewhere, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Feeling will often deceive us. Commitment to obedience goes beyond simply feeling like being obedient. 
Well, what about love? Some people say. Love is, after all, what the law is all about. If I'm feeling loving while I'm doing whatever I'm doing, that should be okay. The greatest fruit of the Spirit is love. The 1 Corinthians 13 chapter about love, doesn't that overrule all of that? If the law says one thing and I'm loving in another way, if I feel like living with my girlfriend or living in a same-sex relationship, who are you to judge? I'm doing it because of love. That's the mood of the world today. Love is the answer. If the law is in conflict with it, then the law is unloving and the law should be removed. Love will rule. And nothing else that anyone says can do anything about it. Our Lord Jesus Christ has a response to this. He says in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, love and law are not in conflict with each other. What we see from Jesus is that love is the fulfillment of the law. And what this means is that the law and the word of God teach us how to love. The first four commandments, how to love God. And the last ones, how to show love to our neighbor. We would not know how to love, how to truly love, if it was not for the way that God reveals it to us in his word. Certainly we have a faint understanding of it. A faint understanding that we could glean from nature. And you can see that people around the world, they're able to show a certain measure, a faint understanding of that love. You can see that throughout the created world and reflect on that. Even the bear protects her cubs. And the eagle provides for her chicks. But to know how to truly love in its deepest and fullest sense, we must turn to God. Everything else is just a vain parody. True love for God is demonstrated through obedience to him, which comes out of his love for us. That obedience flows from faith. Faith in God. Faith in who God is and in what he has done for us. Obedience is an expression of love. And by making this firm agreement to serve God in response to the mercies that he shows them, the people are demonstrating their love for God. In making this binding agreement, they are demonstrating their love for God. They desire to love him. And they desire to live for him. Not because they think that their abilities are so much up to the task, but because they are responding to his mercy with love. This brings us to our second point. A response in love requires action. But again, take note, this action flows out of love for God and not fear. As we read in, John, in 1 John 5, verse 2 and following, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In Jesus, we have perfect obedience and perfect love coming together in perfect harmony. When we find our identity in him, we find all of our sins and shortcomings washed away through his perfect sacrifice. Because of that, we are able to find ourselves obeying him not out of fear, not out of the feeling that we might have retribution because of God's anger towards what we've done. His anger towards us not living up to a certain standard. No, we respond out of love. Because perfect love casts out fear. And in this, we find how love results in action. There'll be no holdouts in the love that responds to God. Every area of life, finances, sexuality, entertainment, every sphere must submit itself to Christ. The people in Nehemiah's time recognize this, and so they respond. And how they respond is remarkable. We read in verse 28 and following, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nephinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. But they don't just respond with general vague promises that they'll do better next time. Oh yeah, we'll follow the whole law of God. I'm sure that you've all heard those well enough to recognize that while the intentions behind that kind of a promise, I'll do better next time, may be good, they don't last. While they do promise to uphold all of God's law as revealed to Moses in verse 29, they pick out three problem areas in particular and they focus on those. Now the reason that these were three problem areas was because of the fact that though they were based on biblical laws, the landscape around the people had shifted a little bit before the land was more exclusively a Jewish land. But with the invaders coming in and shuffling around the populations, suddenly the land was filled with many more pagan peoples. These pagan peoples were sometimes wealthy. So Jewish families found it beneficial to marry their sons and daughters into these unbelieving families. They also sold on the Sabbath day. So Jews were faced with the question, can I buy these things on the Sabbath day? I'm not working. My family isn't working. My servants aren't working. My ox or donkey isn't working. Should be good, okay? Should be good, right? So it should be okay to buy groceries on the Sabbath day. Additionally, the people had been in exile. Because of this, temple worship and temple service and providing for that hadn't exactly been on the forefront of their minds. And so they had descended into a position of sin on these three particular 
subjects. These three areas in particular, mixed marriages, the Sabbath day, and care for the temple and the temple servants were areas that stood out in their lives. And so they want to respond in love for God. They look towards the areas that stand out the most and they proceed to see what they can do to cut this down. In verse 30 we read, We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. That was the first area that they covered in particular. Now, you have to understand that in this particular culture, marriages were arranged. While the feelings of the child might be taken into account, the decision on whom you were to marry ultimately rested on the fathers. Hence, they speak about giving their daughters away. This, however, had become an issue. We find in Ezra 9 that the people were letting their sons and daughters marry people who had not made a commitment to the people of God. God wanted his people to be a holy race. And yet we read in Ezra 9 verse 2 that this holy race was mingling with people who would not follow God and who would not join with the people. Certainly, if the peoples from around wanted to join with the people of God, they could go through steps to have this happen. They could become proselytes. They could follow the rituals. They could be circumcised and learn the laws. But these people had chosen to hold back from that, and still the people of God were willing to mingle with them. God is holy. And we read in Hebrews 12, verse 10, that the people that he has chosen are partakers in that holiness. The people of God are meant to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. When they set their sights on those who have not followed God, those who have not joined themselves to the people of God, it becomes evident that the holiness, the set-apart nature of the people of God was no longer of first importance to them. Why? Throughout the Bible, we see that embracing God means embracing the people of God, warts and all. In the New Testament, they're spoken of as the family of God, the body of Christ, or the bride of Christ. In the Old Testament, they are spoken of as the bride of God, or the nation of God. They are by no means perfect. There can be much sin among them. They're all sinners in need of God's mercy. Yet to be God's people means to follow God and to embrace their set-apart nature in Christ. They're being made holy. Judaism back in the day and Christianity today is not meant to be taken part of in a vacuum. Rather, it's meant to be taken part of in a community of believers. And when this is compromised, when the set-apart nature of the people of God is compromised, the holiness of the people of God is compromised, then you also compromise your view of the holiness of God. But when this is embraced, something beautiful happens We can see that in the book of Ruth. Ruth, the Moabites, realizes the seriousness of commitment to the people of God. 
She knows what a great sacrifice it will be to her. Yet despite that, she says, your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. She realizes that you can't create a dichotomy. When you become part of the people of God, you follow God. And when you are following God, you join with them. That embracing God happens through a body, through a community that you take part in. And Boaz also remarks on this in Ruth 2 verse 12, saying, The Lord repay you for your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. He rightly saw that joining yourself with the people of God was a symbol of coming under his wings for refuge. You've committed yourself, surrendering yourself and your entire community to the Lord. And God blesses this. Not only does he provide for her because of her rejecting her nation and her gods and embracing God and the people of God, but he incorporates Ruth into the nation of Israel in a miraculous way by making her the very ancestor of the Messiah and inscribing her name forever in a place of honor in the genealogy of Christ. Acknowledging the holiness of God and acknowledging that the people of God share in this holiness as a set-apart nation, even though they may be broken sinners just like you, just like me, is what we are called to do. It's a recognition that God holds a special place in his heart for a holy people. He holds a special place in his heart for a holy people. When we join ourselves with someone, this holiness is the first thing that we should look at as the foundation. This holiness, this following God and being joined together is what we should look for as the foundation for sharing this most intimate part of our lives with someone. God loves his people. They matter to him. Therefore, they should matter to us. Fathers, This is where your task becomes so important. Hold on a second, why me? You might ask. How did I get dragged into this? It is because the holy nature of the people of God, as partakers in God's holiness, is something that you should be teaching your children from day one. Regarding his commands, God says in Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Teaching diligently. The Hebrew word for this is an image of engraving over and over again and making a deep impression on a tablet. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Watch carefully who spends time with your children, who influences them, and who they become intimate with. Sometimes simply teaching them is not enough, but you have to interact with decisions that they make in their lives. As is necessary, you impress on them the holiness of God. If your 15-year-old son or your 16-year-old daughter starts to show interest in or starts dating an unbeliever, you need to impress on them that this is just not an option for the people of God. 
While they are under your care, you have a responsibility for their souls as men who have to give an account on the day of judgment. Therefore, you need to speak with them about seriously thinking about what they're doing. They probably will react. But if you do this in a loving manner, teaching them that love for God means obedience to his commands and that holiness is something that is of utmost importance to God and therefore should be of utmost importance to his people. They do learn. Guide them when they are young, even before they're of dating age. And they will thank you when they're old. They might not understand now, but if you lovingly and firmly respond to them, then one day the holiness of God will become as precious to them as it is to you. The second subject that they cover here is the Sabbath rest. We read in verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it for them on a Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year of produce and the exacting of every debt. The people understood that the holiness of God extended to that special day that was set apart. The ancient Greek historian Tacitus mocked them as people who were lazy. But they understood the spirit of the law that called for rest on the Sabbath day. This was not a question of laziness, but a question of submission and of obedience. Remembering the Sabbath day and setting apart was not optional for them. Instead, it was obedience flowing out of love. As such, they would not even buy anything on the Sabbath, even though the foreigners living among them were not bound by Sabbath laws. Is the Sabbath day optional for you? Is it optional for your children? Parents, when you leave it up to your children to make up their own minds whether or not they want to follow the church down the road, uh, whether you're, you're showing ambivalence. You're saying that it's not important for them to make worshiping God their first priority. Gathering together for worship is of utmost importance. And we find that in Hebrews 10 verse 24 and following in particular, where we read, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting, exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Assembling together for worship is first and, first and foremost gives us the opportunity to glorify God as a body, expressing our love for him in a special way. That alone should be enough to draw us together. But it doesn't stop there. Assembling together also gives us the opportunity to stir up love and good works among each other and to exhort and encourage each other as the final day approaches. As a body, we have responsibility for each other to build each other up and spur each other on. Obedience in responding to the call to worship demonstrates love for each other and ultimately love for God as well. Finally, we read in verse 32 and following about care for the temple and the temple services. That entire last section covers that. The people dedicated 
to the full-time support of the spiritual needs of God's people, needed support from God's people, whether physically, as we see in our passage here today, or through prayer. Parents were to teach their children that living for God involved sacrifice, as it was an investment into their spiritual well-being. And so they promised in verse 39 for the children of Israel, no, this is just a reference to the people of Israel, children, not children specifically, but for the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of grain, of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. They would take care to provide for those ministering in service to the people, in service of God's kingdom, and to take care of their own place of worship. We find that very same promise continuing right into the New Testament, Matthew 17, verse 24, where Jesus himself pays a four drachma coin for the temple tax, two for himself and two for Peter. This was something that carried on right into Jesus' day. This provision that we found here in Nehemiah 10. Today we find ourselves needing to teach our children the importance of investing in kingdom work as well. Now kingdom work in Owen Sound doesn't, simply involve, doesn't just involve the minister, elders, and work of the deacons. But it also involves the missionaries, mission aid workers, those who are involved with outreach on the home front, even those supported by the cause of the month that we have here in Owen Sound today. People are to teach their children to give of their time and money as a willing sacrifice, not begrudgingly, but cheerfully modeling this spirit to them. We find this in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 15. We find the reason for giving cheerfully. Verse 7 specifically states, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in verse 12, For the administration of the service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they, or you, glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them, and all men, giving to the work of the kingdom brings glory to God. For those who look at this from the outside and they see the sacrifice time and time again, the sacrifice that's brought out of love, they see a confirmation of your confession of the gospel of Christ and your dedication to his kingdom through your actions. Now you'll find that over the course of speaking about this passage, I have spoken to fathers and parents in particular quite regularly. And it's with good reason because they are the ones who are responsible for the children who are within their care, for the souls who are in their care. They have to give an account at the end of days that they raised their children as best they could in the fear of God's name. But you young people, you young people are included in this too. This is not just a corporate decision that the people of Israel made in Nehemiah 10. It wasn't even just a family response, although you had many leaders of families stepping forward and taking the lead. 
we can open to Nehemiah 10, verse 28 for a moment. Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Everyone who had knowledge and understanding. This includes everyone. From the youngest child who is able to grasp what is going on, to the oldest person gathered there that day. Each is individually called not just to be a hearer of the word, but a doer of it as well. Each and every single one of you. And not because of the fact that you are working this out, that you're trying to add something to your salvation. But out of the same movement of recognition of God's mercy that you find in chapter 9. In, sight, in all of that, seeing the commands, seeing the promises that are made, in these specific areas, these three specific areas, as well as every other walk of life, part of our life in which we are obedient to God, all of this has its basis in that one thing, God's love, God's mercy. And from there, our love flows out, flows out of what he has done, and we respond. That's always the framework in which we should place our obedience. As the Apostle John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Our life, our service, our sacrifice is not done out of fear or out of compulsion. It is a response to his mercy and his abounding grace. And it's built on the foundation of a Savior whose perfect love and obedience was sufficient for all. When your obedience falls short, no that in forgiveness it was covered by his perfect obedience. This is true for you young people. It's true for you parents. It's true for each and every one of you here today who put your trust in God. So when you go out this week, go out with love in your hearts. Live free of fear and live in the freedom that you have to love the mercy that's been shown to you, and love truly. Amen.